Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Sort of showing your face. Last Sunday, Jason came to church wearing this same outfit, this uh, number 11 Micah Parsons jersey, and his hopes were high. I remember having conversation with him and (laughs) anticipating what might happen that night. In fact, I had conversation with Jason the week before that about how well things had gone in the game when the Cowboys had played against the Buccaneers. And Jason had some, he's not a real superstitious guy, but he had some ideas about how maybe some of the things he had done while he was watching the Tampa Bay game could be helpful while he was watching the 49er game. And so, Jason, I was wondering if you would be willing to tell the crowd about some of the things that you decided to try and how well it worked. Sure. You know, I think I thought I did it all right. I wore my Parsons jersey. I channeled my inner Parsons. I wore my same Dallas Cowboys socks that were dirty from the week before. I had my Cowboys gnome on Overwatch for the game, and I screamed all the plays loud enough for them to hear me. So I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. I, I admire how much you thought it through, and I, and I know how disappointing it was. You and I had lunch on Monday, and I could feel the palpable disappointment after that uh, tragic loss. But you know, there were a few Heritage f- people who weren't quite so disappointed in the loss last week. In fact, I've also invited my friend Tim Moore to come out onto the stage. Um, Tim's, Tim's a guy who was pretty happy about last week's game. In fact, last Sunday, Tim showed up at church wearing 49ers gear and he was representing his team. I was, I was kind of worried about your safety, actually. You know, like I was, I was concerned you're in kind of enemy territory a little bit. You know, I kept thinking maybe I might see Terrell Owens come running from somewhere and knock you down. I, I seriously considered asking somebody from the security team to just follow Tim around last Sunday for his own protection. But Tim, your team won and they moved on. And I wonder if you, as, as a super fan for the 49ers, you know, just give us a sentence or two about what, like, what do you think were the keys to success last Sunday? Uh, first key was definitely defense and forced turnovers. And the second thing was my man Kittle doing the amazing 30-yard catch. Changed the, the outcome of the game. I really thought for sure you would mention the fact that their quarterback is named Brock. You don't feel like that? You don't feel like that makes any kind of difference? I don't know. That seems, that seems important to me. Well, guys, I appreciate you coming up to talk, help me, and keep our church thinking about Football Sunday that's coming up. But the real reason that I brought these two guys on stage this morning has more to do not just with Football Sunday and that event that we're anticipating, but it has to do with our sermon series and with today's message. You see, for the past couple of weeks at Heritage, we've been studying one of Jesus's early and most famous teachings found in the book of Matthew. It's a subsection of a larger sermon, and this little section is called the Beatitudes, which just means the blessings. And these Beatitudes, they're simple statements where Jesus talks about certain groups of people being blessed. And when you read these statements really casually, they sound pleasant, 
Like they don't sound like they upset the apple cart at all. They sound like the kind of thing that you would probably anticipate or expect a religious teacher to say. They sound peaceful. They sound almost subdued. But we're diving deeper and we're taking a deeper look at these statements and we're discovering that when Jesus made these blessing statements, he was not just making nice. In fact, Jesus was making particular claims about God and making claims about the way the world works. And when Jesus issued these blessing statements, these beatitudes, he was choosing sides. He was going public with his position on some critical articles of faith. You could compare it to the decisions that Jason and Tim made last Sunday when they decided to show up here wearing their respective team jerseys. <laughs> yeah. When Jason made a decision to wear a Cowboys jersey to church last week, he was telling everybody who saw him where his allegiance lies, right? He had picked a side in the game, and, he, and, and whatever happened that night, there was going to be no doubt which team he preferred, right? It was really, really evident and clear. And because his team is a local team around here, wearing this jersey was no big deal. It was commonplace. In fact, this was a normal sight. He wasn't the only person here wearing a Cowboys jersey last Sunday. Nobody was surprised in Dallas-Fort Worth to see somebody at church wearing a Cowboys jersey. And then there's Tim. <laughs> Tim, like Jason, decided that last Sunday would be a good day to sport his team's colors, to wear his 49ers shirt, and he was telling everybody here, just by the choice of his wardrobe, that he had picked a side. But as you know, Tim's choice was more of a shock in these parts, you know? Seeing somebody coming out wearing the red jersey, it's more controversial. It attracts a lot of attention. It, it, for Tim last week, it attracted a lot of friendly ribbing because he was going against the grain here in our part of the world. I'm gonna let these guys take their seats. I'm gonna ask you to thank them for volunteering and helping us imagine this. But as they, as they find their way to their seats, I wanna ask you to keep that image in mind. The image of what it looks like when somebody declares their position, when somebody chooses a side. And as we turn our attention to Jesus's teaching today, I want you to notice that this beatitude Jesus is sharing with us, it sounds innocent. It sounds peaceful. It sounds subdued. It's not, it doesn't sound surprising. It doesn't sound controversial. But I'm here to tell you that when Jesus made this statement, he was choosing sides in an ongoing philosophical debate. And the side that Jesus chose was a surprise to virtually everybody. And it was particularly surprising to the people listening who thought of themselves as the most religious, the most righteous, and the most obedient. Our text today is found in the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 5. We've been in this same little passage of Scripture for the last number of weeks. We're almost going just verse by verse. And today's passage just is in one verse. Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 7, the fifth beatitude in Jesus' list. And here's what it says. It says, blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. It's so short, we, we got to read it again. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if you've been following along through this series, or if you just take a glance at the verses right above this one, you might notice a subtle shift in this particular blessing. You see, up until now, in the first few, the first few Beatitudes that Jesus has listed, Jesus has constantly referenced characteristics of people Characteristics that people don't choose for themselves. He talked about blessings being given to those who feel poor in spirit. He talked about blessings going to people who are in mourning, people who are grieving. He talked about blessing going to people who are meek, who don't feel like they have the power to be able to stand up for themselves despite being mistreated. He talked to all of these people who were faced with significant loss and disadvantage and feelings of powerlessness in their society and in their lives. And that's how we've described the series up until this point. It's how we've described the audience that was listening to Jesus in person that day. When he spoke these words, he was talking to a crowd of people who were down and out. He was talking to people who knew what suffering felt like, acute suffering. And because of the prevailing religious wisdom or the prevailing religious understanding of their time and their culture, people who were down and out in those days were often convinced that they deserved their challenging circumstances. Probably not too much unlike our current religious understanding. Unfortunately, there are a lot of suffering people in our world, suffering people in our community who have become convinced, sometimes because they've been told directly, that their suffering is because God has turned his back on them. That's what some of the people listening to Jesus felt. They felt like their sin had caused all of the hardship that they were experiencing, which is why it was so surprising when Jesus looked at people and said, when you're grieving, you're blessed. If you're somebody who feels poor in spirit, you're blessed. If you're somebody who feels powerlessness in the face of mistreatment, you're blessed. And it was surprising because all of those people thought, really? I don't feel particularly blessed. Are you sure you're talking to me? Or are you sure we're talking about the same thing? And now in today's, in today's beatitude, we see a shift. Because when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for the first time, he's talking about a behavior that someone can choose. He's talking about a decision that someone can make. When he says, blessed are you when you are merciful, he's talking about being generous. He's talking about being compassionate. He's talking about being the kind of person who prioritizes restoration over revenge, the kind of person who would rather care for somebody else than hurt somebody else. Being merciful is a, is a mindset that we can choose to follow or not. It's a mindset that produces empathy. And in the Old Testament, time and time again, God is described as being full of mercy. This is how God describes himself. This is how the people who were closest to God described God, God, the Lord, the Lord, 
who is abounding in steadfast love and extends mercy generation after generation. That's who the Bible tells us God is. But you know us, right? You know how badly we can mess it up. Our our human tendency is to be stingy with mercy. If you were to think of some concentric circles, you know, like a target, you could imagine that we are pretty good at dispensing mercy to the people who are in our inner circle, right? Like we're, we're okay, at least we do our best mercy dispensing to the people who are close to the center, people who are near our inner core of our life, the people that we're close to, the people we feel sorry for. And if you were to imagine those concentric circles like that target, you could also picture that we are particularly adept at showing mercy to ourselves because we're the ones right at the center of the circle, right? Like we know how to show mercy to me whenever I'm the one who needs somebody's mercy, whenever I feel sorry for myself. But the farther out you go in those concentric circles, the less mercy we seem inclined to dole out. And so anybody who's outside the circle, whew, You remember the mantra. Some of you uh, are going to catch this cultural reference. You remember the mantra of the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo? Some of you, some of you I know you are aware of this from a recent Netflix series. Some of you who are the true fans remember the movies, the Karate Kid trilogy from the 1980s of the two dueling karate schools and the one school, the Cobra Kai dojo, full of the bad guys, the antagonists. And they have a mantra that they've always lived by. And it says, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. That's the rule they live by. The karate instructor who founded Cobra Kai was fond of saying, the enemy deserves no mercy. No mercy. If somebody fights you, whether it's out on the street or whether it's in a regulated tournament, if somebody fights against you, they're the enemy and they don't deserve any mercy. And the entire movie franchise and the TV series, they're all about this philosophical battle between self-control on the good side and this might-makes-right mentality on the Cobra Kai side. But when Jesus teaches about mercy... He wasn't particularly referring to a problem of violence in the Jewish-Israelite culture, although I'm sure it existed, but he was primarily addressing problems of exclusion and exclusivity. You see, Jesus lived in a culture and in a country that was sharply divided over how to address their most pressing national problems. See if you can relate to that at all. Let me say it again. Jesus lived in a country and a culture that was sharply divided over how to address their most pressing national problems. Sounds familiar. It was different, but it, but it was familiar. In Jesus' time, in first century Israel, 2,000 years ago, the nation where he lived was under the rule and the occupation of the mighty Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire's mantra was something like the Cobra Kai mantra. It was a might makes right We keep the peace by keeping anybody who breaks the peace squashed. 
Being under the rule of the Romans wasn't a pleasant experience. The Romans were demanding, they were demeaning, and any Israelite who stepped out of line was subject to ruthless punishment. And so all of the Israelites were wishing for a way out, but they knew that they had no physical ability to get themselves out. They had no recourse that they could accomplish on their own. Since the Roman Empire was so incredibly powerful, most of Israel was resolved that the only way they would break free was if God worked a miracle, if God made it happen. They agreed on that part. The part they disagreed about was how they could engage God to bring that miracle about. You see, most of the Israelites were cautiously hopeful. They were trying to hold on to hope that had been passed down from generations before, trying to hold on to hope that God's promised Messiah would be sent to deliver them. And so there was a segment of the population who was convinced that if they could just get their religious rituals right, if they could perform the rituals with precision, that it would garner God's attention and favor. That if they would do their worship the correct way, if they would follow the laws the most obedient way, then suddenly God might be moved to respond. And so there were groups of religious scholars, groups of teachers who carved out for themselves positions of influence as the teachers of Judaism. And they studied the ancient scriptures and they studied the ancient laws and they made it their goal to perfect and to enforce the practice of Jewish religious ritual. Not only did they emphasize for themselves the priority of getting their worship right, but they spent a great deal of energy telling all the other Jews who they didn't feel like were doing it right that they were doing it wrong. They spent a lot of time casting judgment, setting up barriers, talking about who was in and who was out, who was right and who was wrong. And that may sound like a small, just a, a little harmless thing that was going on in the periphery. It may sound pretty toothless, but these teachers gained enough influence and enough political power that they began to turn public perception against anyone who didn't practice their religion according to their precise expectation. We see these teachers use this strategy a lot against Jesus as we read the gospel accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These teachers, these self-appointed experts would question Jesus and his disciples in public about their adherence to certain religious rules and procedures, and their goal was to discredit Jesus's authority in the public perception and to build up their own authority and influence. And the, and the effect of all of this was that there were a lot of Israelites who lived their lives spiritually discouraged and downtrodden. There were a lot of Israelites who felt because they had been told by the teachers that they were doing it wrong and that they were basically hopeless. There were a lot of Israelites who were living their spiritual lives in a perpetual state of discouragement. They were being policed by these religious teachers. They were being told, you're not holy enough. You're not dedicated enough for God to ever rescue us. The powerful people who knew the most about the Jewish law were telling people, God is disappointed in your ritual and religious observance. But all the while, these same teachers were creating division and they were the reason 
that ordinary people felt hopeless and condemned. This is the climate where Jesus is teaching. This is the climate where Jesus comes and begins this ministry. And as Jesus is explaining the heart of God, as Jesus is testifying to what God is really like, he says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the people who show mercy. Now in Matthew chapter five, he's telling this to a lot of people who have been met with a lot of disapproval. He's teaching people who know what intolerance feels like. And these people, they're a receptive audience to this message because this message was different than what they were used to hearing from their religious teachers. This sounded much more hopeful. It sounded like good news compared to the condemnation that they were accustomed to. But this isn't the only time that Jesus was going to share this message. In fact, this message would become a mantra. This message would become one of the planks of Jesus' ministry platform for all of the rest of his ministry life. In fact, later as Jesus continued to go public with his teaching, he would talk about this priority, about the blessing that God has for the merciful. He would talk about this in front of people who openly disagreed with him. Four chapters after this sermon, Matthew chapter 9, there's a pivotal moment, a profound moment when Jesus goes to a dinner party at the home of a tax collector. And you need to know just that a, a, a tax collector is a Jewish person who'd gone to work for the Romans, and as a result, he'd kind of earned the scorn of all of his fellow Israelites because they felt like he was a traitor. And so the teachers of the law, these self-appointed religious experts, they come and they start questioning Jesus like they often did, trying to discredit Jesus in public. And they start asking him, why would you stoop to this level? Why would you spend time with the kind of people who aren't doing it right? Why would you associate yourself and make your own, vulnerable, your own reputation vulnerable to being contaminated by people who aren't serious? about their worship and the law. And Jesus, in such an incredible moment, Jesus reminds the legal experts of some parts of the law that they should have been able to instantly recall, but they didn't understand. He quotes a teaching from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. It's, it's an obscure text. It's buried in our Old Testament, Mike, Hosea chapter 6. But he tells these religious leaders, these teachers, these experts, he said, I'm not going to tell you all of the reasons why I'm here. I'm not going to tell you all the reasons why I'm at this party. But I want you to go home and I want you to reflect on what Hosea said. I want you to go home and I want you to reflect on what Hosea actually quoted God as saying when God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a quote from God through the prophet Hosea that's being referenced by Jesus. And it sounds simple. It doesn't sound particularly controversial. It doesn't sound earth shattering. We might not immediately recognize it, but I want to tell you that when Jesus said that, he was throwing down the gauntlet. 
when Jesus made this statement, when Jesus quoted this passage from their law, he was choosing a side. He was unequivocally saying, God cares more about justice than God cares about religion. He was saying that God would rather see humans get mercy right than to see humans get ritual right. You know, there's another teaching moment later on in Jesus' ministry, and he tells a story that goes on to become one of the most well-known, one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. You might be brand new to faith, and you'd probably recognize the name of the story of the Good Samaritan. It's hard to overstate how controversial the story would have been to the people who heard it first, because when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, the religious experts, these self-appointed teachers of the law, they were the villains in the story. In case you haven't heard it, the story is a story about a man who gets mugged and left for dead on the side of a desolate road. And the first two people, after he's beaten and left for dead, the first few people who walk by and see him suffering on the side of the road down in the ditch are religious officials, these legal experts, a priest and a leader from the temple. These were the people who were known for taking their their religion seriously. The kind of people who would make a career out of administering the rites and the rituals that were part of Jewish worship. But as they walked along the road in Jesus's proverbial story, they see this suffering man who needed help. And in that moment of decision at that, you know, quote unquote, fork in the road, they find an excuse to keep on walking. Maybe it's because they had obligations to get to. Maybe it's because they didn't want to be contaminated and become ritually unclean by touching what might turn out to be a dead body. Jesus doesn't give us the details of their decision, their thought, their thinking process. But whatever the reason, the most religious people in society in Jesus' story walked right by the man who obviously needed their help. And then someone different comes along. And the weight of the the shock when Jesus revealed who the next person to come along was would have been palpable in that crowd because Jesus said a Samaritan comes to that place in the road. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. We We don't know any Samaritans. There's only about 400 of them in existence today. We don't know any Samaritans here in Fort Worth, but to Jesus's audience, it told them everything they needed to know because the Samaritans were a group of former Israelites, people who used to be part of the same nation, part of the same kingdom with the Jews. But they had a big split. They had a big disagreement. They had a, a, an intractable feud between them. And it all stemmed from disagreement over how to do worship right. The reason the Jews and the Samaritans didn't talk to one another, the reason the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along is because the Jews were convinced that the Samaritans had defiled their common religion and the Samaritans said right back at you, y'all were the ones that messed it up. They disagreed over how to worship God right. 
They both came from a common religious foundation, but they disagreed with each other on some of the fundamental aspects, some of the fundamental instructions about what worship was supposed to look like. And so Jesus tells this story in front of a group of Jews, and in the story, a Samaritan stops to help the man who was mugged. And not only help, but the Samaritan goes the extra mile and inconveniences themselves and incurs significant expenses. And Jesus makes the Samaritan, the person who does worship wrong, He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And it would have been scandalous. If you'd been sitting there listening to Jesus tell that story, you would have huffed and guffawed. You would have said, oh, yeah, right, a Samaritan. If you'd have been sitting in those chairs, those Jewish people listening to Jesus tell that story, you would have thought, boy, that's a fairy tale. That would never happen. Samaritans are the worst. But that was the point. Because in Jesus' story, the hero isn't the person who gets worship and religion right. In Jesus' story and in Jesus' ministry and in Jesus' worldview, the hero is the person who gets mercy right. The hero is the person who treats God's children the way that God would want his children to be treated. Jesus is picking a side. He's driving a stake in the ground. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, mercy counts more than ritual. He's saying God prioritizes our compassion over our ceremony. It's as if Jesus opened up his cloak, opened up his jacket, and revealed that he was wearing a jersey underneath to tell you what side he was on, to tell you which team had his allegiance. But instead of the jersey that everybody expected a religious teacher to wear, instead of a jersey that had a big number 10 on it for the Ten Commandments, you know, Instead of that, Jesus was wearing a jersey that said, mercy. He's wearing a shirt that tells you who he belongs to, what drives him, where his allegiance lies. And it turns out, that's the shirt Jesus wants you to wear too. That's the jersey that Jesus is inviting you to put on. It shouldn't have come as a big surprise to the Jewish people that God prioritizes mercy over religious ritual. It doesn't come instinctively to any human, but they'd been told so many times. There had been so many moments in their history when their country was in deep trouble and they tried to earn their rescue from God by worshiping harder than they had ever worshiped before. There had been time after time, countless moments in Israeli history when the country had been conquered, occupied, threatened, attacked, all of these sorts of bad things that happened in, you know, in the ancient world with regularity, and they would find themselves in trouble, and they would realize, oh no, we started getting loose and lax about our worship stuff. God must be upset with us. That's why God's letting this happen. So we got to go back and worship harder. And they would, you know, try to get real serious about worshiping the right way. But then God, every time, God would send these prophets, these spokespeople, 
to speak on God's behalf, to remind the Israelites of what was most important. And God, every time in Hosea and so many other places, God would tell them, you know, I'm not really interested in those sacrifices when you're mistreating the poor. He would say, These, the, your devotion is really meaningless when your brothers and sisters are suffering because of the way you do business Monday through Saturday, Monday through Friday. He kept saying, God kept telling him, the smell of your sacrifices disgusts me when I think about the hearts that are behind those sacrifices. Time and time again, the prophets of God boiled God's will down to statements like Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says what God's really after is for his people to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. This is what God is really after. And the crazy part is, it's not that God was disinterested in religion. You read through the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the whole system of sacrifices was God's deal. It was God's instruction. It was God's idea in the first place. But the problem was they misunderstood what the sacrifices were supposed to do. They thought the sacrifices were supposed to get God's attention. They thought the sacrifices were supposed to make God look favorably upon them. And what they missed out on was that the sacrifices were supposed to remind them of how badly they needed grace. They were supposed to remind them of how much they couldn't earn God's favor, how much they couldn't earn God's love. And when they got that in perspective, when through their worship they were reminded of the goodness and the generosity of God, they were supposed to be motivated to extend that same kind of goodness and generosity to others. The sacrifices were supposed to inspire them, to remind them, that what God really wants, what God really wants is for us to act justly and love mercy and walk in humility. So Jesus, can you imagine him standing on that hillside, this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, the one we've been studying throughout this series? I want you to picture him in your mind's eye Maybe he's standing up on a, on a high place on that hill and there's people that have scattered and they're sitting all over trying to get close enough so that they can hear. And if you can picture that scene in your mind's eye, if you can imagine what that looks like, I want you to put a, a, a jersey on Jesus. Put a jersey on Jesus in your own imagination and imagine that jersey. It just says, Mercy. It says, this is what Jesus stands for. This is what God really values. This is what we were designed to do, what we were designed to be. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they will receive mercy. I need that. I want that. <laughs> here in my concentric circles, right here at the very center, I realize how badly I need mercy. And Jesus is telling you, 
Jesus is revealing a, a philosophy of how the world works. Jesus is explaining to us what the good life looks like. And in Jesus's declaration, in Jesus's platform, in Jesus's revelation, he's telling us mercy's the key. You want to be somebody who gets the kind of mercy that you need? Be the kind of person who gives the kind of mercy that you need. You want to be the kind of person that God looks down on and, and just grins at exactly how pleased God is with what you're doing. It's not going to have anything to do with religious ritual and rites and ceremony. It's going to have to do with the way that you engage the other people the ones who are doing the religious rites and ritual and ceremony with you, but also the ones who are out there who don't. It's going to have to do with the kind of pe- with how you engage the people that you run into, that it feels so circumstantial, so coincidental, and all the while God was intending for you to have that conversation, that interaction, that engagement. Those are the moments. Those moments when you engage with other people, those are the, ro- the moments when your religion becomes real, becomes proven or not. So in this entire series and this question about what does the good life look like, Jesus is telling us that the good life is about so much more than comfort. It's about the direction, the attitude, the goal for which you're living. It's about deciding which team you're on. It's about deciding which jersey you're wearing. And God's inviting you to choose mercy. To be the person who chooses mercy. There's going to be all kinds of opportunities for this. There's going to be, and you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it when your human inclination is to start to get angry with somebody, when your human inclination is going to be to be put out with some group of people, to think they're the problem, to think they're the reason that we're in this mess. Your human inclination, you're going to start feeling your blood pressure rise. You're going to start feeling that frustration that boils up and then, you know, you feel it in your throat. You're going to start feeling that kind of anger. And in that moment, you got to decide which, which team am I on? Which jersey am I wearing? Who do I belong to? This verse is short enough we could memorize it together. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I hope we can remind ourselves in the moments when we need to remember it the most.